Father in heaven, we're thankful that when you send the desire of nations into our midst, that you were truly glorified. And so we pray as we look at who this is, as we see that he's not just the desire of nations, but he's the desire of the ages. All time has pointed to him. And we look forward to time and we will see him face to face. May this place be filled with your glory and your Holy Spirit, I ask in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Quite a few years ago, I lived in Looking Glass, Oregon. Anybody ever been there? All right. <laughs> Some of you have. And as I grew up in Looking Glass, Oregon, and I should say I grew up from the bir my birth up to about fifth grade, um, those were years where I remember the cattle ranch, and this is actually a picture from Google. Um, they didn't, we didn't have the white fence back then. We had just cattle fence around our place. They've updated it since then. But I remember, here's the driveway here, and here's Strickland Canyon Road, and we would take our bikes, we'd ride down there, we'd chase cows down the road, because we had, we had 80 acres up here, and then down here, this field was ours as well, we had 60 acres there, and we would take the cows from one place to another, and we'd have our sticks, and here we were, little brave kids, chasing cows, and keeping the little calves going, and all of that. And I had a lot of good memories there at that place. Um, not a lot with my father, but a lot as a family, I felt like we had a lot of good times there. I remember one time we would take our little lunch pail and we'd fill it with some hot drink and those little lunch pails used to have thermoses in them and, would, and it had a cup too and so as kids it was just amazing. We could pack our lunch and we could just go out and launch off up to the barn or over down to the fishing pond and we would just have a little adventure of it. And that tree right there, as you can get a closer picture of it, there was a place of magical proportions. It was it was a place where I could climb all the way up to the top of that tree. And this one here was my favorite. My other brother's like this one. And this one back here was all crowded out with, with branches and all of that. We remember we made little trip wires and all of this. It was like a place of, it was a peaceful place to grow up as a kid. And I remember feeling, um, as I would go to school, just glad to go to school, but gladder to get home on the bus and to get off the bus and to run around and to have fun. It was a time of young memories. And if you can remember back as a child, fond memories and bottle that feeling, then you know what I'm describing to you here. Just a sense of adventure, a sense of wonder, a sense of everything seemed to be going right for a time, at least part of the time. Uh, my, unfortunately, though, my father was an alcoholic, and there were times where it wasn't quite as peaceful in the home. But I remember just the overall feeling of contentment and stability there in that place. And as uh, time progressed, something happened financially with the ranch and we had to sell it off. And the feeling came to me like, now I, I'm, everything, I'm losing everything. As a child, it's like everything that's familiar to you is gone. And I still remember the, the day at school, and maybe we can darken this a little bit, I'm not sure, but. Um, this here is the playground here, and up here is the school, and then up here is a place I could swing underneath this tree. And I remember swinging there with some of my friends and just saying goodbye. And I still have, as I go over to that campus every once in a while, uh, a feeling of loss. Uh, here I am, 30, going on 35 years of age, and I still have this feeling of something was left, something ended at that time. Maybe you never experienced a traumatic thing like that as a child. Maybe it was later on, but you know that feeling where it's something has changed. It's grief. 
in, in the sense that I had experienced a loss. And I remember packing up the moving van and saying goodbye to my friends on the playground there. And we, as the day ended, the truck was sitting there and it would drive off eventually with a lot of our things. And I walked up this direction here, past the house, there's a gate here, and up here is a, a road that goes around this hillside and up there is the barn. And at the barn we had our, of course, lots of memories up there. And I remember walking up there, reliving them as a little kid, and then walking back down, and by the time I walked down the hill, it was starting to get dark outside, and I began to sing a little ditty that says, I wish I may, I wish I might have, I wish I dreamed tonight. And some people say the word dream should be wish, but for me it was, I was looking up at the sky, and I remember I stayed up there and I wondered if my mom was going to worry about me, but she was at work, and my dad was gone too, so... I didn't feel like they would really worry that much. The moving truck had been taken care of, and they had gone to work. We were kind of on our own. And I remember saying this to myself, looking at the stars and seeing them twinkle, and something spoke to me, like, almost like, it'll be okay. It'll be all right, Murray. What did I really want? I wanted my family to be together in a peaceful place that we could call home, that we would never have to say goodbye to, and then I would never have to say goodbye to my friends. Is that an impure thought? Is that an impure wish, if you want to call it that? In my own little kid way? Well, we moved from there to this place, and quite a big difference, not much place to run around on. Um, and behind that place was a school, and here's a picture of the school. You can see the house is right here, and we could literally jump over the fence and go down to the school. This is our new school, and you know from those types of experiences where you're the new person, it's a little bit difficult, especially when you went from a peaceful environment where there was no drugs, no fighting, a lot of stability in the school system to a place like this in Winston, Oregon, where it was chaos. And I still remember the first day of school, the bully coming up to my brother and just trying to shove my twin brother around. My brother just chased him down and just laid into him. And I remember from that point on, it was terrible. Uh, one po it got to one point where for years, uh, it felt like years going there, but we lived in this house up until I became an adult and even until I became a Christian. And I remember one time after school, after that fight happened, that now everybody wanted to fight us. And I had nothing to do with it. And they were talking about having knives and all kinds of stuff. And I still remember I couldn't get to this fence here because there was a whole group of them there. And so I ran this way towards a newspaper customer's house. And I'd already told my parents that this was going to happen. They'd already threatened us. They wouldn't talk to the teachers and they wouldn't talk to the police. They just let it happen. And I still remember I checked out from my family at that day because now I had to go to a stranger for help because my own family would not defend me. And I became hardened through that experience. But I still wished, deep down inside, I could have the peace and the stability and just harmony in our home. Unfortunately, um, my father got more involved with alcohol at that place. And that loss that day just continued to speed up to one loss after another. My dad and mom couldn't get along. They got divorced. Next thing you know, uh, I was kicked out of this school and kicked out of, uh, kicked out of school repeatedly, and eventually I was kicked out of the school system to an to a opportunity school. And it just continued to snowball from there. 
And years later, as I'm in this facility here, I'm, something had happened. I became a Christian in the county jail, and they transferred me to the Rogue Valley Youth Correctional Facility. And I remember I felt like a new person. I felt like it's almost like I was, it rewound my life to the point where there I am standing back when I was a child, and now I could say literally, I could look up at the stars, and I felt at peace. Years later it took, but there I was, troubled youth, becoming a Christian, and I looked up at the stars that night, and my only thought was that night, was I feel so new inside God. I just wish I could be with my family, and they could feel this feeling. That no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, no matter what experience is the, the, what we psychologists would call the foundational experiences of your childhood, no matter what has happened in the past, you could still be new. You ever had that wish, that desire? I was separated from my family for those 11 months, and I just wished I could be out and let them know the newness that I had had inside. Well, I did get my wish eventually, I did get out, but, uh, and here I am today, but as I went through that, and I've been going through that more recently because there are readings in my doctoral class that ask you to do a timeline of your, your experiences and to list your losses and to be able to ask God to heal those losses. And I wouldn't be able to share them with you unless something, some healing had taken place already. But I've come across people who have desires like that, that they wish things could be repaired between them and somebody else, or, or they wish that somehow the, the past could be put away. And there's this deep desire, this longing that they don't know what to do with. And where do those desires truly come from? That starry night when I was a little child, and that starry night when I became uh, really a man in Christ, I still had that same desire for other people for myself, that we could be at peace with God. I believe the desire harkens back to the story in the Bible of a perfect world of pure desires, of seeming wonderful innocence, and how it was shattered. And then from that point on, it's almost like in each one of our experiences, we can, we can see how that has been played out in our lives, how maybe there was a time of innocence and then it was shattered. Maybe there was those pure desires a relationship started with and then eventually it just got to the point where the relationship ended. Or maybe it was even in the church, a friendship that somebody stabbed you in the back over some petty thing. Or maybe it's your family and you feel like there's a certain relationship in the family that is not what it should be. We all then know the experience of the fall in our lives. And can you imagine being the first parents of this world, and there you are bringing children to the world, and you've got all these reminders of how it's not what it used to be like. You can't go to that perfect home that God had established for you in the garden. You, you've got flaming swords guarding the entrance. And then imagine the, the leaves beginning to fall. That's what this picture is showing. Leaves falling and, and them catching them, and imagine that taking place. Wouldn't there be a sense of huge loss wouldn't there be a sense of a desire that you wanted things to go back to the way they were? You know, our experience is not new in the 21st century. It's been going on since the beginning of time. It's been the desire, this longing of each person who's coming to our, our world. And imagine, here's supposedly Cain and Abel and how they're bringing their different offerings. And maybe at first it was innocent, you know, and 
eventually they were all to understand that this lamb pointed them to the fulfillment of how they could start again, how they could regain innocence through this person that would come. That would be the true fulfillment of their desires if they would look to that lamb. And that same concept goes down through time. You go down, through, down to Noah's day, this whole brand new world, though it was chaotic, it comes into being after the time of Noah. The sign there in the sky, almost like a sign from God's very own throne. Isn't his throne, doesn't his throne have a rainbow around it? it? Looks like in Revelation it does. So he sticks a token of, I'm with you, right in the sky. After every dark, cloudy incident, I'm still with you. And not only that, they had this lamb, this sacrifice there. Remember the whole sacrifice of Noah and his family? And they worshiped God and all of that. And God promised never to destroy the world with water again. I imagine the lamb and the rainbow really pointed them forward by faith. They looked forward to a time when the innocent one would come, would give them the new start that would never permit the world to be like that ever again. And that rainbow around his throne would be right there in front of their face with the one on it who could give them a new start. And so, if I was in Noah's day and I saw all that chaos, regardless of how nice my house is or how much I enjoyed that new experience after the flood, which would have been terrible in some ways, I would recognize the world was not my home. And that concept goes down through the Bible. Israelite culture, you find this whole focus on sacrifices. Lambs dying, blood being shed. Wasn't that all pointing them to a new start? When they sinned, they could bring this lamb and they could be, in a way, not just forgiven, but have a new start. And we go on to other experiences, like in Genesis 15. He brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them, and he said to them, so shall your seed be. Here's the aged parents, and here he, he pulls Abraham aside and says, look up at the stars. Maybe that's deep down inside why, I, as a pre-Christian, that the stars somehow just, not that I worship them or anything, but they just somehow made me think beyond myself that there's got to be someone there that's listening. And this person was given a promise, look at the stars. Your descendants will be just like that, in essence, beyond counting. And he, Abraham, believed in Jehovah, and he counted to him for righteousness. So one starry night, he's given the promise that someday soon, you're going to have not only a promised chi- child, but eventually a whole bunch of descendants. And later on, he says, out of your descendants, then all the nations of the world will be blessed. That means somebody would have to come that would provide the deep-down desires. It would provide deep-down the answer to all the desires of their hearts. We all know who that is. And so as I think of that text, I rewind my little video clip of my life and I say, as I'm looking up, as I feel like I'm crying out to God in those dark nights, that one of those stars was meant for me and one of those stars was meant for you. One star that he saw there was meant for me. I know we could look in Israelite history and find, yeah, they were hundreds of thousands of them, so it's talking about the nation of Israel. No, it's not talking about just the nation of Israel because you get to Revelation and there's this huge multitude that no man can number. Isn't that, hopefully, Lord willing, where we're going to be at? 
with the redeemed of the, the world who you can't even number. They're like the stars in the sand in the sky, sand, sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And so, yes, there was a fulfillment back then. But as we look here, each one of those starry nights that they looked at years ago actually pointed to one person. And Numbers 24 is your FBI scripture, young people. It's Balaam's prophecy. An utterance of him who bears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Verse 17 of Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult, or the mighty ones. And so what we find here is a prophecy of somebody who would come, who Balaam, for whatever reason, he couldn't see him fully, but far off, and describes him as a star and as a scepter. So you have a star, or anointed one, and a scepter, a ruler, coming. And the Magi looked to the sky for this. But we don't have to look to the sky anymore. We have the very words right here in front of us. We know who this is talking about. The desire of the ages and of the nations was Jesus Christ. Deep down inside in our own experiences of loss and loss of contentment and peace, we find the answer is coming that there will be somebody who can rule that situation, who can shine light into that situation. And years later, even, even if you're still grieving over it, can provide healing in that situation. It's probably time that we quit playing church. Deep down inside, we're all hurting at some point. I'm tired of using the words hospital for sinners, and we really don't mean it. This has to be a place where we can lay the burdens down. Where we can say, yeah, we're all hurting here. That doesn't excuse us hurting each other, but it does mean that we should take into account that we are hurting. Because if we can acknowledge it, name it, we can then ask somebody to help us with it. Numbers 24 says, was that enough time, Mitchell, Micah? Is that, you get it written down? I shall see him I shall behold him. And you notice this parallelism there. And it, then it says star and scepter. So the star and scepter is describing a person, a shining one, who would rule. And one prophecy uh, scholar uh, notes it this way. Rabbi Moses ben Maimon has, in my opinion, perfectly hit the meaning of the prophecy. He says, I shall see him, but not now. This is David. I shall behold him, but not nigh. This is the King Messiah. A star shall come out of Jacob. This is David. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. I don't know if I agree with all of that, but I'm going to get down to the main point at the end. He shall destroy the children of Shet. This is the Messiah of whom it is written. He shall have dominion from sea to sea. Scholars and rabbis and all of them point, and they think, oh, it's David maybe, but... All of them, as they progress down through the text, recognize it goes well beyond David. It's somebody who will rule from sea to sea. And who is that? You know, the text doesn't come out and say it. But in Psalm 72, it's describing the Messiah, the anointed one. He is going to rule the nations. He is going to come to each one of our situations. That's why that song says, Come, desire of nations, bind all people with one heart and mind. That is his desire. 
that we would be one and be ruled by one person, the desire of the nations. But how does he become the desire of ages then? You've been reading that book, haven't you? I've been reading Desire of Ages. I've been looking through it. Wonderful book. It has just refreshed me on the exact moment of my Christian experience that very evening when I'm reading it that I need that very evening. And then I've gone on to Steps to Christ. That's refreshing me in the same way. How does he go from being known as Desire of Nations to Desire of Ages and get a whole book written by, about Jesus? Actually, the scripture gives us some answer. We go to the prophets and we find, like in Jonah and the others, that these nations deep down inside, there was a willingness to repent. They needed someone to come to them. Like Jonah goes to the Ninevites. Later on, of course, we know that another prophet has to go because they've kind of gone back to their ways. But he goes there and he preaches to them and shares with them after being vomited up by that whale. And they accept it, don't they? Are they responding to him? Uh, deep down, he doesn't want them to repent. He's responding to the message that God is giving through him. They recognize it as the voice of God. They then turn to that one whom Jonah is talking about. And that capital, which would eventually become a nation, repents. So deep down inside, there are people who truly want to know which way to go and truly want to have God in their lives. They just need people to come beside them and talk to them and tell them that. And I'm not Jonah and neither are you, but we could at least fulfill the role of letting them know that they're valued, that God does care about them, that he does speak to their very situation they're going through. Well, you go down to Daniel, and you get another prophet, right? He comes to the, the King Nebuchadnezzar. We're familiar with that in Daniel chapter 2. And it's here really that you see a transition from not just is he going to rule the nations, but really all the kingdoms of the world are going to their inevitable end, which is this desire of ages. It's, it's a time, more of a time element rather than a ruling element. And yet you have the rock coming that will eventually fill the earth and rule. But the main idea, though, is time. These kingdoms all have just time to rule, but really there is coming the one who's going to rule for all ages. Do you think if you were in some of those societies, like say you were Nebuchadnezzar, and you had the dream, and you couldn't sleep, you began to think about your own life, maybe, don't you, wouldn't you really want to have someone come beside and tell you that there's an answer to that emptiness you're feeling? That's what Daniel provides. He doesn't just point them to the, oh, here's your dream and all. He points them to the one who gave it. There is a God in heaven who reveals the secret things. And so he's not just revealing to him the nations, but he's revealing to him deep down inside his desire that, some, that he would live forever, that he wouldn't just come and go as a king in this world, that he could actually have eternal life. And so Daniel, as you see him through the book of Daniel, appeal to Nebuchadnezzar in different ways. He's not just appealing to him to be a good ruler here and now. He's appealing to him so that he could be in the kingdom. We go down through time. We find there's a promised child. Remember John the Baptist? He was a promised child, wasn't he? But he wasn't the promised child. He was pointing to the king, pointing to the desire for a people's hearts where they want to start over and have peace with God. He prepared the way for the king. And I can imagine the excitement of those aged parents who all of a sudden now they've got the child they've always wanted. 
course, there was some disbelief there. He didn't uh, get to speak for a little while because of it. The father was speechless until the child was born and the name had to be assigned. But they prepared the way for the king himself, and the king comes. And now he's not just the desire of nations who's going to rule the nations, but he's the desire of their hearts where they truly deep down inside want to live. They want to be a part of something that will be lasting beyond their lives. They want to have hope beyond the grave. And he comes now as the desire of ages. And that's why that, little, that book that we were reading is, is, is highlighting all of these things about Jesus. He's not just the desire of nations. He's the desire of all time. He can give us the new start that we want. He can give us a perfect home that is, makes everything we've ever had just be so small and insignificant. He can provide what our hearts are truly wanting. He can help us with the childhood that didn't go so well. He can help us with just the whole grief cycle that we've always worked hard to try to maintain ourselves, and, but we've never dealt with it. He can guide us through this. And so, you look at the child Jesus. Can you imagine this little boy, uh, the child baby growing up to become a little boy, and there he is. It says that he grew with favor with God and with man. It also says that as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. But it also, did you notice that it mentioned him reading the scriptures? How can we focus on just one part but not the other? As a child, they recognized this little boy had promise. He stumped the rabbis in the temple. He's reading the scriptures there at the church. Do you think at some point it dawns on him who he really is? It's pretty clear from one of the accounts in the Gospels that on the way back from that time in the temple that he was about his father's business, that he all of a sudden he knew that he had a special plan that he was a part of to fulfill, a mission to accomplish. So I imagine him growing in that knowledge, beginning to realize that at a certain point, he would leave home, he would begin that ministry. And as he goes about, he's not going about as a ruler of all the nations like they wanted him to be. He goes about as really fulfilling the desires of humanity since the beginning of time down through. He comes up to the guy who says, I really wish I could have a new start. I wish my family could too. And he heals the man. Does the guy have a new start? Physically? Yes. Spiritually, he has an opportunity to, to link that to a spiritual reality. That now he's accepted by God, that God values him, he's of value to God. So he has that new start there. And then we find Jesus later on after he gave lots of new starts, physically speaking, lots of encouraging words, spiritually speaking, new starts. We find this innocent one who was once that child there in the carpenter's shop. We find him growing up, doing all these miracles, the children flocking to him, wanting to hear his stories. And then what do they do to this boy becoming a man? You would think if truly he was their desire, that deep down inside, if they needed what he offered, that they would receive him. But the story doesn't go that way. It's kind of like that story with that lady in the nursing home. It's a sad story. It kind of gets you thinking, ah, but it shows us our value in God. What he would go through and spend, spiritually speaking, to save us. What more can you give to somebody than your life? For years, I wondered about that. My grandfather had a lot of money. And I remember all the experimental treatments he went through to stay alive at the end. And there we were, standing by him in the hospital. And he couldn't hardly move. 
My wife was there. And he looked over and he said, who's that standing beside her? Was he hallucinating? I don't know. But he somehow saw, uh, must have been in, in his mind, an angel or something there. Beautiful, he said. And we stayed with that man all the way, my twin brother and I, the one who we had literally plotted to do him in at a certain point. We were now Christians and we were surrounding this man with praise. And he would request a song. He would start singing to the guy and he would fall asleep. And then he would wake up and say, Grandpa, what else do you want to hear? But he had done everything he could to prolong his life. And then at the end, I sensed that he really was, we asked him, had you ever given your heart to the Lord? And just say, Lord, guide my life. I want to be with you forever. He said, yeah, many times. But there we were in that place, and it seemed like he was doing it all over again right in front of us. He gave his all, physically speaking, to preserve his life. And at the end, he gives his all to God and says, give me life. How much more can somebody give you than their lives? I mean, Jesus doesn't just come and get, get tortured so that you can say, oh, he really loved me. He was willing to give everything. Do you realize if, if he didn't succeed, what the consequences would be? Imagine the whole universe in chaos. I mean, we can't even imagine that. We can't even put our minds around our world in chaos, let alone the universe in chaos. Imagine risking everyone that you love who has never made the mistake that others have made and now if you fail, they're going to be treated just like you are. Wouldn't that weigh on you? Wouldn't you as a parent or as someone who loves people around you, wouldn't you hate to see an innocent person go through that? And so it's more than just the weight of our sin and all that. You find the weight, if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, the whole heavenly family in Ephesians 1 through 3 is involved in this thing. And so he gives his all. He risks everything. They mock the guy. They put this scarlet robe. You're really the king. You're really the desire of a nation, right? You're really the the ruler. No, they didn't really accept him. They take him, rip his back apart. This picture doesn't do it service. Throw that piece of wood on him and make him drag it. Can you imagine, though, the joyful feeling he had when there was somebody beside him, right there on the cross, beside him, who wanted a new start? There he was going through all that mess, and here's somebody who says, I recognize there's something different here. I recognize I can have a new start. I'm going to die. But at the end of my life, I want him. Maybe you're not at the end of your life, and I'm not either, but do I want him now? If so, then that fulfills the desires that deep down you're feeling. I'm not saying it'll be a pat answer and solve all your problems. It won't do that, but it will give you a hopeful future to look forward to if you look to him as the desire of the ages, deep down the fulfillment of all your desires. And imagine the words from the cross it is finished. Not just it is finished, but it is finished. What was completed? We oftentimes focus on the fact that he's our, high, he's our priest and all of that afterwards, but we have to recognize that something monumental happened at the cross. Otherwise, we wouldn't find statements like this from our book, Desire of Ages, that we've been reading. Christ's words on the mountainside were the announcement that his sacrifice in behalf of man was full and complete. 
So everything in, the, in their past that they had that were pointing forward to him, the loss of their Eden home, the, the sacrificial system, the bow in the sky, everything was pointing forward to this, and there it is, and it's saying everything finds its fulfillment in him. It was full and complete. The conditions of the atonement had been fulfilled. The work for which he had came to this world had been accomplished. He was on his way to the throne of God to be honored by the angels, principalities, and powers. He had entered upon his mediatorial work. Clothed with boundless authority, he gave his commission to the disciples. Go ye, therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He keeps going on. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or into the world. So you've got the whole complete picture there in that statement. Something monumental happened at the cross. Atonement on behalf of man. The sacrifice was full and complete. The conditions had been fulfilled. Yes, there is the application of those conditions as far as the sacrifice and the atonement. There's an application to be made to our lives, but it had been complete. Otherwise, why would he send his disciples out to tell people? Oh, we're not quite ready yet to let you know some good news. Now, the good news is right there. It keeps going on. Another page, Desire of Ages, page 819. The Jewish people had been made the depositories of sacred truth, but Phariseeism had made them the most exclusive, the most bigoted of all the human race. How could that ever happen to those who have so much truth? Everything about the priests and the rulers, their dress, their customs, ceremonies, traditions, made them unfit to be the light of the world. They had become unfit. They looked upon themselves, the Jewish nation, as the world. It's like, it's like that old theory of how the solar system revolves around, the sun revolves around our planet, right? I mean, they were the ones who everything revolved around in their minds. They were the world. They were the reason why God was still having grace and mercy in this world. That's a little bit bigoted, isn't it? But Christ commissioned his disciples to proclaim a faith and worship that would have in it nothing of caste or country, a faith that would be adapted to all peoples, all nations, all classes of men. It would be a message that would speak to every heart. It would be the desire of all the nations, and it would be the desire of all the ages. It would lead up to a time of eternal value. Thus Christ gave his disciples their commission. He made full provision for the prosecution of the work, he took upon himself the responsibility for its success. Who is responsible? Christ is responsible for the success of this church. Helps me really uh, relax sometimes because your work doesn't rely on me and doesn't rely on you. It's relying upon him working through us. So long as they obeyed his word and worked in connection with him, they could not fail. So you've got to have that connection with him. Go to all nations, he said. Go to the farthest parts of the habitable globe, but know that my presence will be there. Labor in faith and confidence, for the time will never come when I will forsake you. I will be with you through all the ages. So deep down, he saw way beyond the cross, way beyond his resurrection, down through all of our problems in our lives that we've lived up until this point, and he says, I'm still there. I was there, Murray, when you were there looking up in the night sky. I was there years ago when you long, climbed that tree there to get away from your abusive father. I was there years ago when you just felt that huge grief wrap around you and it's taken you years to get over it. I am your place of safety. I, who hung on a tree, 
And so I wish I may, I wish I might have the wish I dreamed tonight. That little childhood prayer. Jesus is saying, I am going to come for you. I'm right there in the situation you're facing. I'm in the situations you're going to face in the future. And I'm not leaving you there. I'm coming back for you. You will not be left as orphans. Because the three angels' message is the good news that Jesus is going to go to all the world. The end is going to come. And then we're going to see that cloud the size of a man's hand. Remember Elijah, he saw that cloud and he told the king, you better get going. <laughs> so the king gets going and he runs before the king, right? Prepares the way for the king. I want to be the one who's, who's one of the ones who sees this cloud the size of a man's hand. And we run before the king preparing the way. And we point people to the real fulfillment of all their desires and everything they've been seeking in this world. It's found in him. And then we float up, or fly up. I want to kind of go a little slower. I don't like all those fast airline takeoffs. And we go up into the sky, and we go to wherever he wants to take us to, somewhere near Orion or whatever. You know, it's just beautiful. I don't care where it's at. Just, just go there. And we go there, and we're with him forever. And the desire of all the ages then is fulfilled as we see him face to face. So as I went through this this week and I'm reading in Steps to Christ, I recognize my first step would be to recognize that he is the fulfillment of all my desires, that he can heal all of my hurts, and that he values me eternally. If you don't recognize you're that valuable, that's a hard burden to bear for the rest of your life. God is saying there should be no doubt in your mind that you were valued by him. You're beautiful in his eyes, you're of eternal worth in his eyes, and you know what? He has given his all to prove it to you and to me. And so he knows what I am going through. He knows exactly what I'm going through right now, whether it's a bright moment or a dark moment. And doesn't the cross prove that? He knows exactly what pain is like. He knows exactly what separation is like. He knows exactly what darkness is like. He knows what I'm going through. And so what must I do? What Murray must do is recognize that this world must become nothing to me. My kingdoms must fall. The things that I think I need to be built up that in, somehow are important to me or are important generationally to my family, all of that has to fade. And the kingdom is my heart. So I want to give him my heart. I want to say whatever's happened in my past, whatever's happening in my present, whatever's happening in the future, I surrender it to you. Rule my heart and change this world one heart at a time. Father in heaven, we place ourselves before you. There could have been some abuse in our past. There could have been some hurtful situations in our past. There could have been some grief. There could be some loss that's attached to that grief. There could be a sense of separation from you. Whatever it is, Lord, if we have somehow masked the hurt by pursuing our own kingdoms, we're going to place ourselves before you now, asking you to forgive us, cleanse us, give us a new start. And Lord, I know I'll be praying this prayer not just once and for all, but daily, as Paul says. We will die daily. Crucify me. Crucify the, the hurt and the pain that I've tried to hold on to, Lord. And as we all look to you and stay connected with you, we will then come to each other in love, true love, because we see how much you've loved us. And we will have the desire of all the ages in our hearts. And that desire will flow out to each one of us, to each other, and to each person outside of this building. 
Come, desire of ages, into my heart now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.